Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and today I have the joy, the fun, the delight, the just the kick in the pants of talking to my great friends, Dennis and Barbara Rainey. They have dropped yet another book, but before we get to the new book, give our friends a little update on Dennis and Barbara Rainey. Family life has changed. You left that ministry. You turned it over to a new president and CEO, and and now you are in a new chapter of life. What's this like? Tell them, Barbara. (laughs) It's very different. We like it. We like not being responsible anymore. We like, (laughs) yeah, we like it that every time the the toilets break at the building, they don't call us. So that part is really, really nice. But it's been been an adjustment, and we've been processing that, and here we are five years later. Hard to believe it's been been five five years. years. Five years this month. Wow. We're still on mission. That's how I describe it. You know, people said, heard you retired. And I correct them, say, we have not retired. We have refired, recalibrated, and re-upped. Because I think until you breathe your last breath, you're in the king's army. And it's time to do warfare. Our country is teetering around some of its most basic foundational tenets. And uh, it needs a biblical perspective. I know you don't believe it's believe that strongly at all, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like Barbara's thing about it's different, and Dennis is like, I'm on a new mission. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're really not on a new mission. We're, well, we're, you're, you're on mission. See, I'm lazy. I just want to sit back and, you know, do nothing all day. Anyway, yeah, not really. Yeah. Not really. Well, you know, I should know this because I was so privileged to be part of Family Life. Cindy and I were for 15 years and change, I think. But what number of book is this? Do you know? Uh, I don't know. No idea. 50, 60? Counting Bible studies, probably approaching 50. Okay. Wow. Again, well, and I, and I appreciate that you don't keep count, but I was just more curious because that's one of the things I always felt like when we were part of the team was you were prolific, both of you, in what you wrote, but we didn't talk about that a lot. That was part of you know your choice as a servant, not making it all about Dennis and Barbara. But at the same time, it was we didn't really acknowledge, look, Dennis and Barbara have cranked out a lot of books and the ministry imprint that you both left. I mean, Cindy and I, along with, I think it was uh, Tim Kimmel, and we were in a conference years ago, and he made the comment, you know, we've kind of grown up with Dennis and Barbara being our surrogate parents. <laughs> and I mean, it's true, even though we were similar in ages, but it was like, we learned from you. <laughs> we have plenty of children, Michael. We're, we're not looking for any more. <laughs> oh, darn. Oh, darn. <laughs> We can't be in the will. Anyway, we're already in the will. Let's talk about this new book you put out. It's called Our Story, Dennis Barberini, and uh, it's dated September 2nd, 1972 to 2022. Now, first of all, is this book everybody can get a hold of, or is this book that you kind of did for, obviously, your family, but was it more of a small circle with the intent? Barbara? Yeah, it was a small circle. We wrote it because as we celebrated our 50th in early September, and as we were looking forward to that, we were trying to decide what do we want to do? How do we want this to look and feel? And part of what we wanted to do was leave our kids a gift of some kind, give them something that they could hang on to. And we realized as we talked that even though our kids think they know our story, they probably only know pieces of our story. For sure, our grandkids don't know our story. They don't know the stories of what God has done in our lives. They don't know all the things that we've been through and how God has been so faithful. And 
We also realize that some of the youngest grandchildren we might not know for very long. I mean, they're, we've got infants right now. And, you know, if God grants us favor, we will be around when they're 20, but we may not be. We know that. So we decided to write our story in print and give all of the grandkids and our kids, too, a copy so that they would know a little bit more about their mom and dad and their Mimi and Papa. We, uh, a number of years ago, were given a letter by Dave and Peggy Jones. You'll remember they were yes. on the Family Life Marriage Conference speaker team, and they had been given a letter that was written by a Baptist preacher in the 1600s. Obadiah Holmes was his name. I, I remember this. We wrote about this in our devotional Moments yeah. Together for Couples. The last three days of the year are really a reprint of his letter to his descendants. And that letter now has survived 12 generations. It's fascinating. And that's really, he was addressing his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren as he spoke, speaking into their lives, wanting them to be on mission, wanting them to be a part of the king's army and rolling up their sleeves, making a difference in their generation. So that's where the idea came from. It germinated over a period of probably 30 years in Barbara's in my life, and we decided to put this thing together to give to our children and grandchildren, probably some great-grandchildren, too. Well, I was going to ask, is there any lens on one of the first great Well, first of all, how many grandchildren, Barbara? 27. 27. Okay. I know. Isn't I think that I've, staggering? That's how I, I feel I have 27 pairs of socks, but nah. <laughs> <And then laughs> great kids are married, and would there be a great-great-grandchild in the Next year or two or three or four? Well, potentially three or four. We have one married. Our second grandson, James, got married last May. And he's still in college and she's working and they don't have any plans to get pregnant anytime soon. But three or four years, maybe. Yeah, those plans sometimes don't hold up. Uh, what's, it, don't. <laughs> what's it feel like to have grandchildren get married since we're not there yet? feels really strange. It's hard to believe he's big enough, old enough. I mean, you look at him, <laughs> he looks old enough for sure, but it's just hard to believe he really is. I think it's rejuvenating. You know, children are God's message to the next generation that life continues. It goes on. As I like to say, there's more than one way to change the world. You can overpopulate it yeah. with, <laughs> with little believers who uh, embrace Jesus Christ and his claims for their lives. And I think that's the time-tested method of both discipleship <laughs> and of passing on the nursery. Yeah, the nursery yeah, overpopulate <laughs> and conquer. Yeah, that, that's that's a theory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell folks who don't know your story. When did the two of you meet? Well, we met in college when I was a junior at the University of Arkansas, and Barbara was a sophomore, and we met through Campus Crusade for Christ. What was then that. Uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, now crew. And we were in the same group together, and we always liked each other, got along well. She dated my very best friend, and uh, unfortunately, he couldn't make a decision to marry her. So I said, if you don't marry her, I will. And really had no intention at that point of marrying Barbara. But uh, about a year later, we found ourselves together at a little meeting in Dallas, Texas called Explo 72. I was in charge of transportation for 40,000 high school kids that were deposited all over the Metroplex, Fort Worth, Denton, 
North Texas. Anyway, and you we were did how that. Old? Remind them how old you were. What, were you 20, 19? 23 and 22. And I think we'll get to heaven and find out we had angels driving buses during uh, <laughs> Explode 72. Because 100,000 people came together in the Cotton Bowl. And it was a powerful time to see God at work. But we were in the midst of a relationship beginning at that point. We really never dated. We just hung out. We spent time together when we were working on Explo for 52 days out of 50 until a guy who had influenced our lives dramatically at the University of Arkansas, Don Meredith, not the Dallas Cowboy Don Meredith, but Don Meredith, the campus director of CREW, and he set us down in a musty motel room in Paul's Valley, Oklahoma, and tell him, Barbara, what happened. Well, we were there, Dennis and I both were there to be in a wedding of really good friends of ours. I was a bridesmaid, he was a groomsman, and on the afternoon before the wedding, which was that evening, Don asked if he could have an hour with us. And we said, sure, fine, we'll come over. So we, Dennis picked me up where I was staying. We drove over to this hotel and he said, have a seat. I want to talk to you. And I will never forget this hotel room. It was very 50s. It was very small. It had one double bed. It had a small table with two chairs in front of the window. And that was all that was in the room. And it was dark. And it was musty, and um, we sat in those two chairs, and Don planted himself between us both on the edge of the bed and said, you two have been dating long enough. You've been hanging out with each other. I mean, think it's time if you decide uh, whether or not this is God's will for you to get married. Well, I was like a deer in the headlights. I was shocked because that had not entered my mind at all. It hadn't entered Dennis's mind either. We were really good friends because we'd been really good friends in college for three years. And I had had enough dating relationships that went south. And I just thought, you know, I really like him a lot. I, I want to keep him as a really good friend. And I don't want to mess it up by turning it into a dating relationship because then that might jeopardize the friendship. And I didn't want to jeopardize the friendship. So at one, at one point, Michael, we were walking through North Park Shopping Center there in North Dallas, and I reached over to hold Barbara's hand. And this is at, when we'd gone out like 52 days out of 55, just as friends. We went fishing. We had lunch. We hung out <laughs> till 2 a.m. in the morning, just talking and getting to know each other. And I reached over to hold her hands. We were walking out of the, the shopping center, and she shot me a look and said, why did you do that? Yeah. And I didn't have an answer. And so I dropped her hand right there in the parking lot. And that kind of drew a line about the physical involvement that Barbara and I had. It was not a relationship that was going to be built on any kind of physical relationship. We virtually didn't kiss until we got engaged. And uh, no regrets about that, by the way. But that's kind of how it happened. And he challenged us to to get alone and take two weeks, pray about it. I prayed about it for two days. <laughs> you were ready. I'm, as you You're know, an indecisive you know, fellow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a man of action, as you know. And I decided, I lived in Boulder, Colorado, and so I decided I'd call Barbara. And it was, I think it was about midnight in Boulder, and she was in South Carolina, so it was 2 a.m. for her. And I woke her up, and I said, I've been praying about this. 
Will you be my wife? Will you marry <laughs> Over me? Over the phone. I've never heard this story. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's a closely guarded Over secret. Over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you're bleary-eyed and this crazy guy caught, wakes you up. And what did you say? Well, I said yes, but I knew that because we had talked this thing through, after we had that meeting with Don in the hotel room, we drove somewhere in this little town and parked the car and looked at each other and said, well, what do you think? What do you think about what he said? I mean, we haven't talked about marriage. What do you think about that? And we both said, well, yeah, I mean, we like each other. We're really good friends. We're open to that. And, you know, let's think about it. And so we talked for probably two hours until we had to go get ready for that wedding we were in. And then after the wedding, we drove off somewhere and talked for another two or three hours about it. And we just, as we talked it through, we thought, you know, God has a plan and God knows what he's doing. And if this is God's will, why would we want anything else? We don't. And so we had agreed that we were going to pray about it, as Dennis said. And so as I flew back to South Carolina, I said, Lord, I need to know what your will is. I need to know if this is where you want me to go. And if he asks me to marry him, do you want me to say yes? Or am I supposed to say no and walk away? And I just had this sense of peace that if he asked me, I was supposed to say yes. I didn't hear a voice. There was nothing like that. It was just this contentment, this sense of peace of this is right. And if he asks you, go for it. And so when he asked me, I was already with my answer. And I said, yes. A couple of things the Don Meredith story, I knew about Don in your life, but I'm just now having this explosion. Okay. Now I understand Don's fingerprints on family life. (laughs) <laughs> and everything down to, pre- I mean, even in the work, but in the session we had for pre-marriage about get away and pray for two weeks or whatever the number was, I'm going, okay, this is all from Don's mouth to the family life material. Secondly, I have become reductionist in my pre-marriage counseling. What I mean by that is I don't tell people to go to pre-marriage counseling anymore because they don't listen. They don't pay attention unless it's a bona fide psychologist generally go after you've been married a year, (laughs) you know, because now you're going to have fighting. And, but the other thing I tell them, and I told a couple this recently, I said, let's just, we're Christians. Let's just bottom line. Do you like each other? Do you like hanging out with this person? And you said you went fishing together and I'm laughing. Do you like this person? You know, Cindy and I have, we're just babes, 43 years of marriage, but we like each other. We still like hanging out. If she's got her office upstairs and I'm downstairs and we interact over the coffee pot once or twice in the morning. We like each other. And I think this is something not talked about because we're talking about, you know, sex and compatibility and finances and planning and dreams and hopes. And those are all crucial, but do you like this person? And what I hear y'all saying was you were friends. What a great way to start. Yeah. Yeah. To marry my best friend just made so much sense. Why would I want to marry somebody that was a stranger? So, I mean, he was in many ways, but we had spent so much time together and logged so many experience, life experiences. It just was made sense. Absolutely. The reality, Michael, is I just think God led us together. And if you nail that down on the front end, what is there left uh, to discover in terms of it's God's will? So get on with it. It changes your options of pulling a parachute out and bailing. Divorce has never crossed our lips. We didn't have romance when we started our marriage. That was one of the odd things, that there was not 
a lot of feelings there. We hadn't had a chance to develop that side of the relationship, but we went to work on that soon after we got married, and it's been 50 years of fun courting my wife and, and dating her, pursuing her, and I'd marry her all over again, 100 times out of the You know, 100. it's interesting, and, and again, you taught Cindy and me this as we taught these conferences was romance is a horrible foundation for a marriage because it, it waxes and wanes, and because we're differently wired, men look at romance specifically, physically, women look at romance with the more holistic approach to, you know, everything from atmosphere and experience and they don't line up. And boy, we tried to, you know, teach that through those conferences that this is a horrible way. And when you have couples today living together, it's so hard to extricate them from that because that intimacy that they think is good will not sustain that relationship. It's got to be more than, quote, romance. Yeah, I'm just looking. The book that we gave our children and grandchildren on our 50th anniversary uh, last September 2nd contains our story, the first half Mm -hmm. of the book. And then the second half is a message that Barbara and I have been working on, just distilling it out, 50 lessons from 50 years now, let me interrupt for just a, a moment. When you first told me about the concept of this, I thought, this is going to be a ginormous book that none of his kids or grandkids are going to read. <laughs> I mean, because I know Dennis Rainey. And when he says 50, I mean, I've got 50 chapters that are 20 pages long, and we've got two volumes coming. <laughs> and then when I saw yeah. your product, I was like, okay, this was brilliant. Because these lessons are succinct. They're potent but they're also digestible. Yeah, I was first asked to speak on marriage and do this at Southern, the Southern Baptist Seminary in mm-hmm. Louisville. They gave me 60 minutes, and at that point, we'd been married 40 years. So I had 40 lessons from 40 years of marriage. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> and I finished that message in 61 minutes. And Dr. Al Moeller, who's got a pretty good pretty good mind, got up to speak, and he said, well, (laughs) 40 lessons from 40 years of marriage. What is there left to say about marriage? And he then went on to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. (laughs) Let me me clarify what Dennis didn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, Exactly. Expound on it. But I think people are hungry to know what what is the essence. It is one thing. It's a commitment to Jesus Christ and to one another in a covenant relationship. That's the source. That's the foundation. That's where you start. That's the headwaters of a, a marriage relationship and a family. But there's a lot of other components. And I was looking. I can't find them in here. But sex and romance are way on down mm-hmm. the line. You know, it's not that they're not important. They are. But it's not number one or number two. So to your point, Michael, romance is oversold to single people thinking they can sustain a relationship on that, and they can't. It's less than 31, if I understand. It says husbands and wives spell romance differently. Did you all have discussion, or was this almost almost pretty much, okay, we've done this long enough to know, because... I'll let you tell them what number one is, but I read number one and went, of course, 
I knew they were going to say that. But was there a prioritization to the way you put the 50 lessons together? Yeah, there was in the sense that we knew there were certain things we wanted to be sure and say. But we also tried to do it somewhat chronologically. Um, We didn't want to start out talking about lessons we learned in the empty nest on lessons one and two. So we did try to keep some kind of chronology in order as we went through it. But yeah, we had a lot of conversations. We literally sat on the couch next to each other with our computers and talked our way through all of these and shifted certain ones around. And it was very much both of us writing everything together. Your first one is couples that pray together, stay together. And again, that was part of sort of non-negotiable in the family life weekend to remember was we talked about this incessantly. And I remember using an illustration about the first time. And for those that don't know, when we were on the speaker team, Dennis and Barbara would lavishly treat us to a uh, family life speakers retreat. They didn't pay us much for the conference, <laughs> but <laughs> but they made up for it in lavishly uh, treating us to this week down in uh, different locations. And I remember, I think we'd only been on the team maybe two or three years. And of course, we're doing this together. And the one thing I tell people was you can't stand up and lie all weekend. You either have to do what you're preparing or you're just yeah. going to be a big fat liar. And so I don't think I'd pray with Cindy. And I mean, beyond embarrassment. And I remember the first night, and I told the story of the conference, I flopped my uh, left hand over because I was on the right side of the bed. And I said, will you pray with me? Without a second's hesitation, she said yes and put her hand in mine. And I tell the story, you know, to try to be humorous. I'm glad I was laying down. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'd have fallen over. And, And it was easy. But the fear especially for a man who probably has, you know, less than adequate prayer life and has not ever or for years said, honey, will you pray with me? And, you know, I don't know. I just always found that striking that she was like, sure. And I don't think there's been a night in our married life when I've done that. And it's waxes and wanes because we go to bed at different times now. So it's a little different. And, you know, I live with chronic pain. So when I'm done, I'm done. So I got to lay down and she tends to go to bed later than me. But fascinating to me is she's never said no. The only thing she's ever said was, I'm too tired. Will you just pray? (laughs) (laughs) And then she falls asleep while I'm praying. But, you know, be that as it may. (laughs) Well, Barbara has said no to me about praying with me on occasion. But very few. That's right. But it's usually broken up with a pause after she says no, because I don't like you. Yes. You've hurt me. And until you repent, you're not going before Almighty yes. God and having a conversation with like him. Nothing's about wrong. Us. Yeah. Yeah. And so I can honestly say, and I have said this for 50 years, I don't think we would be married today mm. if we didn't pray together. We are both two very strong-willed, opinionated really? people. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I know that comes as a, as a great uh, reveal yeah, to you. Gosh, for breaking on In Context with Michael Easley, Dennis Rainey <laughs> is a strong-willed, opinionated, uh, know-it-all, I mean, uh, a person of decision. <laughs> <laughs> Barbara, you want to comment on that? I can Clean up, I, yeah. Come on. I'm looking I'll clean you. up, yeah. It's just the practical reality of marriage is that you're not always going to feel like 
doing the right thing, no matter what it is. And praying together is just one of those many things that's yeah. right, but we don't feel like doing. And so I just wasn't willing to fake a relationship with God with my husband. And so when he asked if we could pray and I felt like there was something unresolved, I said, no, I think we need to talk about this first. So it's being real with each other, but also being real before God, because faking it doesn't get you anywhere. For a number of years, I've challenged men to pray with their wives, and I've made this promise. I say, if you do this for the next two years, you may miss a night or two. Don't worry about it. Don't get your knickers in a wad about that. But if uh, you pray together with your wife, I can promise you on the authority of Scripture, not chapter and verse, but just generally, your marriage will not be the same. Your family will not be the same. Two well, years and from. I have to inject and, and give you credit, because one of the things you taught me was— Let's don't dissect the prayer. Listen to the heart of your wife. What, yes. What she's praying about, what she's praying for. And in our married life, and you know our, our kids' stories, you know, she prayed for our children. And I often tell the story, our kids wouldn't be where they are today were it not for Cindy's prayers. And, you know, I think, I think you know, other men are better than me, but I kind of compartmentalize and go, well, that's over there. And yeah, generically I pray. No, my wife prays for our children and our grandchildren. And I think a lot of us in heaven are going to see the great reveal that it was silver haired grandmas and moms who prayed for those difficult children. I, I think one of the reasons why prayer works is because you're talking with God and to talk to God your will has to be bent. Your neck has to be bowed to his authority. And when two broken, selfish people bow their necks before Almighty God, God can show up. Yep. He can't show up where they're stiff-necked people who can't admit fault and refuse to ask for forgiveness when they've when I've heard Barbara, that doesn't work. That marriage will never be what God intended it to be. One of the lessons that struck me was the prize is won, but the competition isn't over. Talk about that a little bit. I didn't tell you the story at the beginning that when Barbara flew back uh, campus at the University of South Carolina after we had been together at the wedding and we'd been challenged to pray together for two weeks, I didn't tell you that the guy she flew back with was a pilot in his own plane, and he was after Barbara. Nice. And so I had a little competition. And, you know, I just kind of wanted to seal the deal and see if Barbara wanted to spend the rest of her life with me. And so we did that. But it occurred to me early in our marriage that just because you've sealed the deal and you've got wedding bands on doesn't mean the competition's over. There's kids competing. There's work that's competing. There's women of the streets that are competing. Early in our marriage, there was a guy that I'd led to Christ who made a pass at Barbara in our home. So we moved the Bible study out of our home to another place. And the competition isn't over. You've got, got to keep going for your, the soul of your wife and her heart and wanting her to be nourished and cherished and cared for. And so... We haven't done it perfectly, but we continue to do that in one another's lives. It's fun to court each Barbara, other. Barbara, let me give you a chance to respond to that because that lesson sounds like it was Dennis's generation, but I mean, that he generated the idea, in other words. Yeah, I think he did generate the idea, but um, as soon as I heard him start talking about that, I knew 
that it was true for both of us. It wasn't just him going after me, continuing to court me and to pursue me after we were married, but I needed to also contribute to that because it's both of us. It's both of us saying no to other things and other people, other interests, other distractions, and both of us continuing to say yes to each other and yes to the priority of our marriage over everything else. So it's a lesson that we've both learned, not just not just one of us. Early in our marriage, Michael, I went to Billy Graham School of Writing because I didn't know how to write. Barbara had already corrected my grammar a number of times. <laughs> and we're thankful. Because I spoke, I spoke hillbilly. We're thankful. But uh, yeah, I am too. But while I was there in the hotel room, I stayed in a Holiday Inn. And when I stepped out of the room and started to go down the stair steps, on the stair steps, was a Playboy magazine. I don't know if that was the brand of it, but it was a full spread laid out at the top okay, of the Okay, let me steps. stop you for a second. Every guy I know has had this experience, Dennis. I had this experience as like a third grade kid riding a bike home in my neighborhood. And I remember it was a penthouse and it was laying wide open in the street. And there were three of us that had just got our Cokes and Cheetos at the convenience store. And we stopped on our bikes and just stared at it. It's almost like, you know, Satan is always at work around every corner. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it just seems to be a universal story that at some point a young man is introduced <laughs> to a magazine laying around. Yeah. And so in a moment's notice, I had to make a decision yeah. and my mind went through this. Wow. She's yep. beautiful. No one will know. God will know. I'll have to tell Barbara, because even at that point in our marriage, I compared Barbara to a magnet, a magnet that drew me home from travels and from the marketplace with my children. And I didn't want to betray that trust. And I didn't want to betray her or our family in making a momentary decision. So I stepped over it. Guess what was still there at the end of the day when I came back from attending the seminars there? Crazy. Crazy. That magazine was still laying at the top of the stairs. And the reason I took the stairs is the elevator was painfully slow. So, you know, I do think there was a lot hanging in the balance at that moment. I'd like to tell you that I've always stepped over and never, never looked. I have failed and I've talked to Barbara about that. We discuss those matters in our marriage and she's discussed them with me too when there's been an attraction to the opposite sex. So I think that's trust. And the covenant of marriage is a sacred matter. And I think we have to maintain it with faithfulness and enduring love, just like God's enduring love of us. You know, it's striking. I was talking to a friend of mine that you know that I won't name, but he's in his 70s and he was on a trip recently and a woman was aggressively hitting on him on this trip in his seventies. And we were joking about it. And Cindy and I had just gotten married. We were living in Nacogdoches, Texas still. And I had started a new job and I had to go to a conference in Austin. So I drove from Nacogdoches to Austin. And long story short, I went into a department store to buy a tie because I was the only person in the event without a tie. And so I went, to, I didn't have any money, but I, I'll just get a $5 tie, you know? So I go in, I'm looking at this tie and I pick up this tie and I go up to buy it. And this very attractive, very attractive woman is hitting on me like nobody's business. And I've told this story. It's not the first time. My sinful self is literally, I said, Lord, why did this happen? 
after I became a Christian. <laughs> and then I said, why did this happen after I just got married? <laughs> you know, And I mean, it was pejorative, but that was, I mean, that's my sinful self. And I remember running back to the hotel. This was before cell phones calling Cindy like a schoolboy going, you're not going to believe what just happened to me, you know? And she laughed about it, but it was, you know, I don't want to overstate, but in my last year, I've said Satan and evil more probably than in my entire ministry to say evil is so prevalent. And all it takes is that 20 minute indiscretion to destroy a life. And you and I, we all know too many people that have destroyed not just a marriage, but children and grandchildren and a legacy. On that cheery note, let's go forward. I know I hate asking this kind of question. If there's one, so let me pose it this way. What are one or two lessons of the 50? And let me start with Barbara. One or two that, not that are the only ones, but maybe stand out to you or have a little more meaning to you. I know that's a little unfair because they're obviously you chose 50, but one or one or two that you think those are really important to well, share. Well, as I was flipping through the pages while you were asking, there are two actually that happen to be next to each other that I think I would say are two of the most important for me or have been for me. One of them is lavishly forgive one another. You know, we tend to think that you forgive and one is done. Once I forgive, it's over. But there are some things that we each struggle with that we have to come clean from or repent from over and over and over again. There are just some things that don't need a one-time forgiveness. And so I think forgiveness is the lifeblood of any relationship. And if you don't forgive continually on and on, over and over and over again, I think walls begin to build. So that would be one. And the second one that's on the facing page, interestingly, is honoring your parents helps set you free. As you know, Michael Dennis wrote a book on honoring your parents years ago, and we talked about it a lot at the speaker retreat, and it was at the conference. But I remember that being so important to me because the things that I needed to forgive in my relationship with my parents were impacting my marriage and my family. And I didn't realize it until after the fact. But because of that teaching and because of that principle that he had discovered and realized was true in his own life, he kept encouraging me to forgive my parents and to honor them and to establish that relationship on the right footing and to let go of the things that I was holding on to. So forgiving each other, but also honoring our parents were both really crucial in the health and growth of our marriage relationship. And again, just super quickly, when that book first came out in its first iteration called The Tribute, Cindy and I employed that at our parents' 50th, and we did it with hers first and then mine. And you talk about, I, I can't overstate the recalibration, the appreciation. I mean, it was, it was a thing of God, especially for Cindy. Yeah. Who's all her parents are gone now, but wow, was that interesting? Cause we thought these were bridges and walls that could never be crossed or repaired. And it was life-changing Dennis one or two that really stand out. Well, since Barbara gave two, I want to give three. I'm going to cheat. <laughs> of course. An extra 50% here. Lesson 28, we learned to build too many guardrails around our relationship rather than too few. And I list some of the guardrails I have. I don't travel with women. 
I don't have lunch with women alone. If I do meet with women, the, the door is open in my office, or I've got a glass and the window is there without the blinds being pulled. A second one that I think is really important for Hannah's generation especially is uh, protect the margins around your marriage and family. Young people today are incredibly busy. And I think it was Napoleon who said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I think exhaustion causes us to drop our guardrails. And so I think you got to protect your, your margins around your marriage and family so you've got some left for home. And then the last one is number 50, the third one I talk about. Our new mission is sharing the truth about God and our experience of God with our children and grandchildren. Psalm 78 verses 5 through 8 give us a charge. We are, we've been given a testimony, it says. That's what Jacob was given. And we've also been given the law. So there's two things there. The testimony is your experience of God. And I think that begins by sharing the gospel, by sharing how you came to faith. And it occurred to Barbara and me that we had never shared our testimonies with all of our grandkids. So we used the opportunity on our 50th to do that, to share with them how we came to faith and Christ. But the second thing is, is to pass on your experience of the truth of God, that you experience him. That's a living reality. It's not a once a week at church experience for an hour. But we like to talk about it at the dinner table as we're driving along. This past Thanksgiving, we spent it with uh, only one of our adult children and her family, Ashley and Michael. They have seven boys. And one of their boys came to me and he said, hey, Papa, he said, do you remember, do you remember giving me a life lesson as you took me to the car wash? And I couldn't remember that I'd done it. He said, you talked about how the FBI trains their agents in spotting counterfeit, counterfeit dollar bills. You told me that they're, they're trained by looking at the real thing. They don't look at counterfeits. They look at the real thing. And then you read and talked about Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Know the scriptures because that's what real life is. He's an Aggie today. He's a freshman at Texas a and I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, me too. Me too. But I do have a Papa ball cap that says I'm, a, okay. I'm, I'm an Aggie grand, grandpa. But, you know, it's interesting. A little conversation I had with him. Six years ago, while washing the car, stuck, and as he heads off to school, that little deposit, if he embraces that, that'll save him a lot of grief in his four years at Texas A&M, because there's a lot of sinners that go to Texas A&M. Uh, I would say 100%. <laughs> <laughs> because we all are. Uh, yes. Yes. So, so, okay, we're talking about our story, Dennis and Barbara Rainey, 50 years. Will this be available to everyone? It's not right now. We, It's not that we don't want it to be. It's that we didn't have the well, time. And to you got to figure out how. But is that a hope? Yeah. Well, potentially. I like the idea you had, Michael. Okay. Well, and, and for our listeners, uh, and we'll have information in the show notes, before we started recording, I said, Dennis and Barbara, you need to make this a paint-by-numbers product 
so that the rest of us, just like you have done all your married life, can say, oh, look, they gave us some ideas and we can tailor this. When Cindy and I did the tributes for Wally and Katie Sherwitz and Joseph and Marianne Eastley, we followed the blueprint that you had outlined and it changed relationships and a tremendous amount of healing, especially, well, both of us. My parents, you'll appreciate this, Dennis, the, the same pictures hung on their pre-finished ash paneling wall in their house they had bought in 1965 that never moved. And when we did the tributes, my brother and oldest sister and I, and that was no small accomplishment, getting my siblings to cooperate. Yep, it wasn't. Yeah. And that was no small accomplishment for Cindy. One of the five did not. That being said, I said, I'll do all the leg work. Just read some of the book and do it. Finally got him to agree. I had him printed on acid-free paper, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I bought frames that were all the same. We presented them. I had each of my siblings read aloud to my parents their one-page tribute. Of course, everybody was a wreck crying. <laughs> and within, uh, oh, a couple of hours, things that had never been moved, the table was moved, the lamp was moved, and those three prints were on the wall. And Joe Easley, bless yeah. his heart, I want copies. And so we had to photocopy him, and he, he would litter. <laughs> Wherever he went, he would litter. And he would give people unsolicited, you need to read what my children wrote about me, you know. Um, and uh, it was, it, yeah, that was dead. That's that is sweet. So sweet. It was very sweet. But point being, this, our story is a great thing for you. And some of you don't need the props, but a lot of us do. But the idea is sit down as a couple, capture, review, remind what God has done in your life to carry you to this very day. We've all messed up. We've all sinned. We've all hurt one another in the marriage life. We've hurt our kids. And to sit down and say, let's, in, in brief, write down our story, how the Lord Jesus Christ has saved two terrible sinners and given us a new life and dwelt us with the spirit and given us a reason to live far beyond our own ideas. Can't tell you how much, Cindy, I love you guys. Appreciate you. You've imprinted us deeply. Your fingerprints are on our life and uh, God's used you in a tremendous way. So thanks for your story and our life. Well, and in turn, Michael, you and Cindy have, uh, Put your fingerprints on our hearts. And it's been a great inspiration as we've watched how you two have dealt with pain. Not just average run-of-the-mill pain, but catastrophic pain. And you're still preaching. You're still teaching. You're doing the hard thing. As one of our dear friends, Ashley Treffin, who's had two liver transplants, says, everybody has heart. That's exactly everybody right. Everybody has heart. God bless you guys. Man, we love you all. We love you. As always, all the information in the show notes on the podcast. And you need to check out what Dennis and Barbara are doing, and we'll have links to that as well. This is Michael Easley in Context. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters. <laughs>